Hey there, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Margaret Petrie, and this is Authentic Obsessions. The world is filled with prolific artists who have an obsessive hunger to create. Today, I'm talking with Deb Dila. Deb's a scientist working to improve Milwaukee's Three Rivers and the Lake Michigan shoreline. She's also an artist who works in encaustic, mixed media, photography, and video installations. So along with her science degree, she also took classes in photography and filmmaking at the New England School of Photography and Massachusetts College of Art and Design. She's been creating and exhibiting her work for over 20 years. When Deb and I first started talking about her being on this podcast, she didn't think she had any obsessions. But during our conversation, we discover her love of old buildings, mainly empty ones, and also her obsessive need for alone time. Now, I know we all need to recover from external stimulation and being around people, but Deb is constantly thinking about the next time that she can be alone. The way she talks about it, I'm calling it an obsession for sure. Check out the show notes for links to Michigan's Hamlin Lake, to VAR Gallery in Milwaukee, and Art Prize in Grand Rapids. And check out photos of Deb's art and installations on her episode page at AuthenticObsessions.com. Of course, I want you to follow me on Instagram at Authentic Obsessions. But what I really would love is for you to share the podcast because it's not about me. It's about community and sharing the stories and experiences of these other artists. So if you like this episode, if it resonates with you, if you think someone else would appreciate it, please share it with a friend and please subscribe and leave a review because that's how people will find us. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the generous and open Deb Dila. Hey, Deb, how's it going? It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you, Margaret. I'm glad we're here together. Me too. Well, I am really happy that you're here. You are a photographer, a metal worker. You've done video installations. You do encaustic work. When did you first create something that you loved? Interesting, uh, now that you ask that, just popped into my head. When I was, uh, I don't know, maybe in the third grade, second, third grade, I created this little animal sculpture. You know, we got to glaze it and I put these red spots on it that I were just fantastic on this animal. And then when we went to pick up our little pieces, you know, mine was gone. And I thought, oh, what happened? I couldn't believe it. So then, I don't know, a few weeks later, I'm over at my buddy's house and I look up on her shelf and there's my freaking animal. Yeah. And I said, come man, that's my animal. I made that. She said, you did not. I said, I did. I worked really hard on it. Look at it. Those are my little red spots on there. It was, uh, you know, one of the first things I made that I really loved. And, uh, and that was just, I totally forgot about that experience until he mentioned that. But yeah, indeedy. She kept it. Did she say that she made it or just that you didn't make it? She said that she made it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, so all of the different types of work you do, you say that a different type of story emerges from interactions you have with each of these media. Can you tell us about that? I would say from the beginning, when I first started working, it was in, well, when I first started working, it was animation, really, as an adult, when I started doing art, which I loved. I loved animation because I'm an awful drawer, but it was, whatever, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and almost all animation was drawn then. But still, there was a lot of bad drawing going on in animation, and animation was a pretty big thing. There were a lot of shows and that type of so. I would just draw out my animations, and what I loved about it is that I could make anything happen. You know, anything that was in my head, I could bring to life and tell a story about, as opposed to working with human beings. So I, I loved that, and I loved the storytelling. And then it, it moved from 
it moved from animation, which, you know, I guess when I was drawing the, the fifth picture or 10th picture of somebody's arm coming up toward their face to, to smoke, and then their arm going back down <laughs> and smoke coming out. And I thought, I could just shoot a human doing that and save like three hours. <laughs> then I kind of switched more over to filmmaking. And I loved that. I was in Boston at the time. I was working at a biotech company, but I you know, had some time that I dedicated to going to school to learn animation and film. Uh, there were some good art schools there. There was a museum school, which was part of the Boston Museum, and there was also mass art. They offered some great programs. So that's when I first started studying um, uh, filmmaking. So animation led pretty naturally to filmmaking for me. Again, it was very storytelling. But then it did start to get a little more abstract as I was doing that. And that kind of might be what was moving me more toward doing, you know, installation pieces as well. There was some kind of story, but, you know, the narrative was less maybe obvious for those installations. So are you talking uh, about video installations? Video or? installations. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the video installation was even a, a combination of film that I shot and then reshooting it onto video you know, putting everything together on video, editing everything together on video, projecting that, which also led to the work in metal because I needed to think of ways, different ways of displaying my video. So I started working with, with metal and bending it, shaping it to these big forms that then I would also cover up with fabric that, you know, I could project video into. Oh, so, so you used your metal led... work in your video installations. Yeah, initially. What about encaustic? How did you, how long have you been doing that? I have not been doing encaustic for very long. I've been doing encaustic since I, you know, first got back into doing art again after I moved to Milwaukee. And encaustic's been nice because it's, as opposed to photography and video, encaustic has been a way for me to work that's much less narrative. I get an idea, you know, a phrase that's floating through my head, and I just want to let it float along in there and then make something, you know, while it's floating around in there without thinking really hard about it, without having a, uh, a storyboard, which, right. you know, oftentimes I had for my work in video for sure and in and film. And even when I was shooting still photography, I would oftentimes shoot stories, essentially. So it'd be storyboarded out in my head. And encaustic is such a different experience for me than, than that was. I was at an open studios event in Milwaukee and I was looking at this piece and really enjoying it. In fact, I bought it and it was encaustic and I thought, oh, that's really nice. I, I love that. I love the, the way it yeah. is. And went and talked to the artist and she, you know, she had her, her beeswax melted and everything. I said, oh, I love the way it smells. And then I thought, you know, I think I could take my photographs and transfer them. So it started with that photographs and transfer them to that beeswax, you know, and do encaustic sure. that way, which I did initially. But there was just something about it that was so, I just wanted to build on it. I wanted to make textures with it. So I dropped the idea of using photography and encaustic together and just went straight to encaustic and color and building textures. And so it was a quick evolution. So know. do you still do all the things? Right now, I'm focused on encaustic. I'm focused on it because it's you know, what I didn't know how to do. So I have a learning curve on that. And it's so different from other ways of working or thinking. Definitely, I'll go back to the other stuff. I love doing video installation, and I love photography. So it's, it's not off the board, but right. right now I'm trying to concentrate. You know, right now I've got a full-time job as well. So, you know, there's a limited amount of time that I can do, do anything, and right now it's, it's focused on encaustic. And I love the fact that I could just have these little ideas that I could work on. I'm wondering if your day job has informed 
the creative side of your life and what you do, or if it's just a respite from that type of work? I think they, well, so what I do is I'm a scientist and have done that for many, many years. I did that, you know, before I did art. Probably at first it was, well, always it's been a balance. I mean, I love science and I love art and I love the, how the two things together balance, balance my life. Now that I'm doing both of them, it would be at the same time, it would be I would like to do less maybe science right now just because it's such a full-time, over full-time right. job that if I could, you know, focus that down a little bit, a little bit less time and do more art. But I love the balance of the two, the two things. I was thinking about that. When did those things, you know, come together in my life? And I thought, you know, I think it's like goes all the way back when I was a when I was young, when I was a little kid, my, my mom was divorced and we lived with my grandparents. And my grandfather was a, a Ford engineer, Ford tractor, Ford truck. Down in the basement at the house, he had his own little workshop. So at night after dinner, he'd go down in his workshop where he would repair televisions and radios. And sometimes he'd let me go down with him at night, set me on a stool and, you know, I could hand him stuff while he was working. You know, he'd open up the backs of these things. It was vacuum tubes back then. You know, he'd figure out which one was not working. And he was so, you know, centered when he was down there and he'd be humming and just so happy. He'd finally find the vacuum tube that was out and, you know, fix things and then plug it in. And then it would be beautiful. You know, we'd all get lit, lit up back there. If it was a TV, suddenly a picture would come on. Right. So that magic. was like, it was like magic and it was like science and it was like art and I adored my grandfather. So it was like love too. So it was just, you know, all of these things coming together so many years ago. So yeah, That's I think cool. that the two things have always meshed well for me. So do you have an obsession? I like alone time. I work with a lot of people, a lot of people in and out of my office and married, you know, so interact a lot with other people. So I do every day and think about until I am alone, getting to be alone, having some time where there's no other human energy coming at me. In that time, I feel like, you know, more peaceful without, you know, humans generate a lot of energy and they have a lot of emotion. And that's great. That's fine. You know, I, I love to interact with that, but I love to also step away from that and not have any of that you know, coming toward my body, you know, within mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> keeping distance from that, social distance. So I have for many years had a studio. You know, I tried to have a studio or did have a studio initially with someone else. And that's when I went, oh, I think I need to have my own studio. I think I need the space by myself where I can be alone and be completely at, you know, at peace and at one with what I'm doing. I have, in fact, pursued that. Yeah. Yeah. Many, actively. Many years. Actively. It's not a second thought. No, it's not. A lot of people just take the leftover time that they have for yeah. alone time. Well, yeah. Even for, you know, when I did, did exercise outside, it, was, it would be running. It was running for years until finally you know, my feet gave out and couldn't take it anymore right. at about 42. <laughs> but that was the same thing. It was being alone. It was having that time with myself. So I have in all of my life. In fact, even down to when I was probably three, you know, I'd go outside, I'd strip my clothes off, I'd head down the street to the woods, which was this like walnut orchard down the street from where I live, and just go for a hike until some neighbor found me or my mom found me and brought me back. But it was that little peaceful alone time, uh, you know, just hanging out and feeling the world without the intensive influence of, uh, of human beings. Or anything. Of any, well, yeah, no, 
don't know. I think I, when I'm there, oftentimes I feel feel the energy of everything else. I mean, that's it. No, I just meant like more. no external, you know, oh, no yeah. clothes, no oh, nothing, yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing holding it back. Nothing yep, I'm just here. I'm gonna I'm feel here. it all. Yeah, I'm gonna smell me. it all. Yeah. Uh-huh. You participated in this year's thirty by thirty by thirty exhibition at Var Gallery in Milwaukee. I did that last year and it really changed my art practice. Can you tell our listeners what that exhibit is all about and your experience with that? Yeah, sure. So it's an exhibit where 30 artists are selected to make 30 pieces of art in three days in January. And it was quite the experience, I have to say. Again, I was super busy at work. So Margaret, thank you, because I know I came to you and I said, ah, I don't know if I should do this. And I said, yes, I you should know. apply. And you did. You They're did only exactly six inch squares. You just yeah, have to do six on. inch pieces. You can do it. Yep. So, uh, so I did. It was fantastic. I have not had an experience like that, you know, where I, where no matter what was going on here in the lab, I knew at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, I was going to go in and work on a piece or work on three pieces for encaustic, uh, it takes a while to finish a piece because you're layering a wax and then letting it dry and then layering more and you know fusing it to the to the uh, panel and then building things up and scratching things and putting in oil paint so there are you know a number of uh, steps as opposed to finishing a thing in, in one day so usually I would work on maybe three things at a over a period of three days but it was it was fantastic it was it, times when it got, got hard, it was nice because VAR set up a Facebook page so you could go and you could see what other people were doing. People would post every day or every few days what they were working on. And it was reassuring that, you know, other people were going, this isn't working. That's not working. I can't, you know, this isn't what I wanted it to be. So it, it's nice. It's nice working with other people that way. It's a, it was a very tight little community for that month, wasn't it? It was. It's really, it was. Yeah, I found yeah. that really great. And we were looking forward to having a fabulous uh, opening for this this event. But then COVID hit, like, I don't know, three weeks before we're supposed to have the opening. And that was that. So everything, this show is now online. Josh Josh. Hines, who, who runs VAR Gallery, went out, I mean, did a spectacular job bought a camera, shot the whole thing in 3D, put it online within a couple of weeks. It was, he installed the whole thing by himself, which in and of itself was miraculous and has a great show online where you could go in, see everything, pick what you want, grab it. Nice work by Josh and by his team to to accomplish that in the short period of time that they did. Yeah, they did a beautiful job. I went on and looked at a bunch of different artists and I did buy a piece of yours. I'm looking forward to getting it in August. (laughs) Thank you, Margaret. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) It's exciting. Are there reactions or conversations you hope to spark in people when they look at your work? This work was based on the Rust Belt. I grew up in Detroit, the Detroit area. It's a city that was aggressively hit by the downturn in the industrial age. And in that city, there are numerous, unbelievably beautiful buildings that are just crumbling and falling down. And they've been there, you know, this has been going on for for many years now. And those beautiful buildings, always I want to go into them and, and be inside of them and just feel what's inside of them. I've always been attracted to that kind of thing. In Boston too, I did a lot of shooting in that in those in buildings that were virtually empty. But what I like in those buildings is this feeling I get when I'm in there of this productivity of human beings and maybe machines together, but that that human energy that I've talked about before that's very that's very uh, sparky, you know, isn't there anymore, but you can still kind of feel it there, or I can still kind of feel it there. Just 
vibrating inside of those walls or something. And just those machines and the, that industriousness and, you know, inventions and, and ideas that people had and a middle class springing up out of that. It, you know, it's just such a, I don't know, I feel that when I'm in those buildings. I love old buildings. I love to be in them. So I wanted to do something about the Rust Belt because there are many of those buildings. And it so happened that my studio is in one of those buildings and there was a lot of rust falling out outside. So I thought, (laughs) I'm going to collect that. I'm going to mash it up and I'm going to start doing a little Rust Belt work. So I did a couple of three pieces. And then when the uh, three by 30 came up, I thought, maybe I'll try to do, you know, that will be my theme for the 30 by 30. So that's what I did. That's really evocative. I have this vision of going inside a building like that and not having to be around the loudness and the energy and the people coming toward you, but really like the ghosts of what was in there, you kind of have the best of both worlds where you get to imagine what was happening without having all the external stimulation coming at your face. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe old buildings are an obsession of yours. They could be. Now that you mention it, what do you think about that? Thanks. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you talked the way you're right, Dr. Margaret. (laughs) The way you talked about it, your eyes lit up, and you know, the feeling you get when you're in there and you can imagine the whole story. It's not just that you're attracted to them and you go inside of them, but you're physically taking pieces of them to make your art with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at first I thought being a photographer, I thought, oh, I want to shoot these things, which in Detroit itself, those buildings have been shot, you know, a thousand times over because sure. they are interesting. That was the way I worked. I had photography. That was that was my medium at the time. And I thought, oh, and I did some of that shooting in Boston the same, but then I would put people into it. You know, a person, I drop a person and have them doing something in that building that would then speak to what I was feeling inside of that building rather than just shooting the building. So then when I got to working with encaustic, I thought, now I can try to express what I feel when I'm inside of those buildings or when I'm looking at those buildings or, you know, late at night watching, you know, the Rouge plant in Detroit, all this steel coming off of it still, you know, working and pouring out from, you know, from one building into another building. And yeah, and I don't have to do it in a narrative way. I can be much less descriptive about it. And that was very, that's very freeing for me with encaustic. It's personal. People don't have to know all of the background. No. You can feel that you're making something that's originally and authentically yours from inside. And a viewer knows that. They can read it, I think. Yeah. For abstract pieces in particular, it's just, you know, their reaction to what they're looking. I've got whatever, Rust Belt floating in my head. But if that's not what they're thinking about, it doesn't matter to me whether that brings that up for them. Whatever feeling or whatever interaction that material and that texture, you know, bring to them, that's fine. It's coming from where it's coming from in me and going to where it's going to in them and, you know, bouncing back and forth. Another thing I was thinking of, I have a piece in my studio. You might be able to see it in one of those uh, photographs. It's called The Hunting Diana. It's black and white hanging on the wall in the back room. Does it look like a skeleton a little bit? It looks like a skeleton a little bit or yeah, a yeah. mummy or something uh-huh. like that. I can see it. So there is an artist in uh, Boston called uh, Pierre Gustafson. The other thing that he loves are fountain pens. Loves fountain pens. I think he's like the head of the Boston Fountain Pen Council or whatever they are. Right? That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So he had these whole series 
of paintings he, he did on uh, window shades, you know, those old window shades you used to have that you pulled down, uh -huh, made out uh -huh. of whatever they were made out of. And they were all black and white, like what you're seeing there. And there were parts of famous paintings. That one's a hunting Diana, but the, he had the, you know, the Madonna and, you know, the Mona Lisa. And in one of the, the main character would always be whatever fountain pen he thought best represented that main character. So I thought, oh my God, man, I got to get one of these. I saw that one and I, I grabbed it. Now it has traveled with me. You know, my wife doesn't necessarily, Terry doesn't necessarily love the hunting Diana because it kind of looks like a mummy or a skeleton or whatever it looks like. So oftentimes it ends up in my studio space. And uh, whenever I look at it, I just smile. My God, Pure, I love you. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I thought, I'm going to write to him. I'm going to look him up, find, you know, get an address for him if I can. So I did. I, you know, found an email address for him. I said, Pure, I bought this piece from you 30 years ago. It's been traveling all over the country with me. I just want to tell you, I smile every time I look at it and thank you. And that was it. And I thought, you know, that is such, I mean, that's what I would want my art to do for somebody that 20 years down, later, they're looking at their, and whatever they're feeling, they're feeling something that makes them smile or what, you know, whatever that feeling is. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's beautiful. You just want to bring joy to someone else's yeah. life, right? You do. Yeah. So everyone encounters obstacles. Everyone yep. has fears or how do you rest and recharge? I'll tell you that when I was, I went to photography school in Boston when I quit my biotech job there and studied photography for a couple of years there and then ultimately taught photography there. In that time period, there was a lot of critiquing that went on. So critiquing for me helped for me to think about what I was doing, but also helped me to recover maybe more quickly, you know, from setbacks, maybe emotional setbacks anyway, from what I'm, what I'm working on and move forward again. I mean, it's great to get critiqued at the same time. It can be difficult to get critiqued, but I love it. In fact, I was just, the other thing I'm thinking is, you know, part of the reason I want to, you know, build my community here again is so that I can find people to critique what I'm doing now, that I can have critique sessions with, because I think it's helpful. You're looking for um, some honest feedback. Yeah. Because, sure. I mean, it's nice to get those, but you also need someone to say, yeah, I like that, but, you know, where did it come from? Yeah, yeah. It also has to come from you, and if it's stilted, you can see that. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like sometimes I can look at old work and I think, oh, that's kind of pompous. I, mean, I don't even know how to say it, but that's <laughs> what I think when I look at it. I think, you know, someone should have critiqued that. And someone probably did critique it, but <laughs> nevertheless, to me, it's helpful. And it helps you, I don't know, it helps me be more at rest with my work because I'm not so invested in one piece or in one group of pieces being, you know, the best or being, being whatever. They just are what they are. So tell yeah. us about your studio space. Uh, it's a great space. It's uh, over at VAR West. It's, you know, it's, it's big. It's two rooms. One room I use for the encaustic. I've got a big vent in there. I had a vent in there, so I could do uh, welding. Also, it came in handy now for doing encaustic just because the beeswax itself, as it gets warm, can be a little irritating to the throat. Mixed with oil, it can be a little more irritating, so you have to vent the place. <laughs> so I got a nice vent system set up there, which so, you can so see. During your day job, you work with pathogens, yeah. and in your creative life, you're working yes. with toxic chemicals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, baby, bring it on. You go, Deb. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's nice. And then I have a, a, you know, another space where I do more computer work or that type of right. stuff that I also... Is there something in your studio you can't live without? Well, I've got a bunch of uh, vacuum tubes in there. It'd be hard to live without those. 
I've got a couple of horses there. One of my video installations, I don't know if they're visible, they're hanging off the ceiling in the uh, front room. And one of my video installation was, installations was called Calamity Dances. I ran across these two plastic horses in the town I last lived in in Michigan out on the street and the guy says oh yeah take those if you want them I used to put them up at Christmas time and I just had them up there as as reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh but you know go ahead take them I thought hey, I literal horses I, I thought you were these, talking about sawhorses oh, no, no, I can yeah. see sawhorses in your no, not sawhorses these are like little like, plastic those little plastic <gasps> ponies you used to yes, rock yes. back and forth on yeah so I have two of those they're stuck together and I thought ah, I got to be able to do something with those so I brought him back to my, my former studio, and I had a friend. I had a buddy there who's a cowgirl and an artist, Rebecca Fox. And I said, oh, Rebecca, man, could you put, like, your chaps on and your boots and your spurs and your hat and stuff and do some dancing for me? Because I want to shoot you dancing, and then I want to project that over these ponies i want your feet just to be coming down pounding on these ponies back super hard these kind of nicely decorated ponies but just this <laughs> this cowgirl coming up and the sounds just the sound of her feet and her and her spurs on the floor coming up towards these ponies and then pounding on their back and then you know backing up again and, and it's going to be called calamity dances she did it, and we put together this installation, which is one of my favorite installations. In fact, that's on my website. You can take a look at that if you want to see Calamity dancing. But, you know, that's, awesome. that's what it felt like to me. You know, Calamity happens. It comes up on you really fast, and then it's just bounding away on you, and then it just backs away again. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm thinking about experiences I might have had that resonate with that description. <laughs> yeah, probably most people have had an experience or two that resonate with that. Tell me about the physicality of your work. Working big, working small. How do you recover from it? Yeah, you know, working, I've done both, work big and work small. The encaustic stuff is small. I mean, I'm working like, you know, obviously six by six is very small, 12 by 12, I'll, you know, I'll get a little bigger, but that that small working and focused working, sometimes it feels like my brain gets a little overheated <laughs> when I'm doing that work. <laughs> I'm just focused in there doing what I'm doing. And the beeswax is going and, and everything else. And my brain seems very active when I'm doing encaustic work. I mean, not thinking about specific things, but you know, there's a lot of little buzzing and this, that, the other thing going on in there. When I'm working bigger with bending metal, working with metal, it's, it's much more of a physical experience. You know, my whole body's in it. It's hard to bend it. So that, my brain's pretty nice and quiet. So it is, there are very different ways to work, different experiences that I'm having when I'm working with the metal as opposed to working with the smaller encaustic. And then even when I'm welding, then as well, it seems it's not necessarily bigger space that I'm working in than I am with encaustic, but I'm concentrating so hard on the welding that my brain does clear out uh, pretty well of, you know, chatter and noise that's going on. So interestingly, I was just, I was thinking for encaustic, I almost always listen to music when I'm doing that. And there are very few other things that I do where I listen to 
music. I usually just have silence and my quiet head going on. In photography, when I'm out shooting, I definitely try to get a blank brain uh, for, for working. When I'm editing then, or back in the day when you had to actually print from go into a dark room and print, then I might be listening to a little music and, you know, and adding some other dimension to, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing, the interaction I'm having with the, with the art. But when I'm actually making it, the photograph, that is silent other than, you know, what's going on in my surroundings. How do you cultivate rest and play? Is there any of that in your life? I do yoga. Mm. I do meditation. Mm-hmm. So that definitely recharges my battery. and That's huge. And aligns me. It's been hard for me to find playtime, which is just <laughs> so many other things going on, which, you know, I love doing and, and want to do them. So, so play has been, you know, I haven't been playing as much as I generally have played in my past. So what would that, you do if you played? What's play for you? Oh, play for me is kayaking. It's being outside. It's doing anything yeah. outside. Biking. It's being outside. What's the hardest thing that you do that people might not expect? I would say the hardest thing for me to do uh, right now is to keep my website up to date for one thing and to do social media for my work. It's super hard for me to do that. Right now, my time's so divided up that it's thinking, okay, I'm going to do social media instead of warming up the beeswax. It's, it is super hard for me to make the decision to do right. the, be- the social media rather than the melt the beeswax. Yeah. What do you do to get unstuck? Are you ever stuck in your creative process or in a piece? And is there something that you do to, to get out of it? Yeah, for sure. I, I feel yeah, absolutely I can get stuck maybe with starting a project or, you know, getting moving on something. In order to get out of that, I usually do some reading and something that I'm interested in. And I find some phrase that I go, wow, what does that mean? And that opens me up to do visual art. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I would say that that, that's one way of getting unstuck for me. And that has been, yeah, pretty effective. What what else do I do to get unstuck? What if you have even physical exercise helps to get unstuck. Absolutely. Do you work in a series or do you do one encaustic at a time? Or do you, are you working on several at one time? Yeah, usually I'm working on on several at one time. And usually the several that I would be working on are in a series, you know, are based on the same idea. Right now I'm working on, in fact, I was reading, whatever I was reading, it was something about time and physics. I like to read about physics a lot, theoretical physics, because it's mind expanding. As one does. As one does. He was talking about sand reckoner. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. What an impossibility that seemed at one time to count all of the sand in the world. That you know, that it's true. It'd be really hard to be the sand reckoner. So that's what I'm working on now, the sand reckoner. So those are the kinds of, you know, that, oh yeah, I've got to work on that right now. I've got to get, I got to go to the studio and get started on that. But I have other things that I keep in mind and I just keep a running list of, you know, all, you know, little phrases that are interesting to me. And as soon as I think, oh, what am I going to do? I look at my little phrase book and go, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do now. Is there something that you're aching to change in the world or in yourself? Change in the world. What I'm trying most to change right now is to be more maybe open or to be more generous in the world. I feel like for, for much of my, my life, I've, things have been tough for various reasons. And so I am, 
I feel that I'm overly protective of myself. So that I'm trying to, that I am in the process and have been for a long time of letting go of that absolutely for myself. For things I'd like to change in the world, I would like to see lots of people let go of that <laughs> and, and open up to, uh, you know, to the, the differences of others and, and be open to, you know, what is the world and what is there and it's just what is there and, you know, accept it. So yeah, I would love to see that change. I would love to see way more education in or openness availability maybe and I guess education in art and in science I think that people need to learn way more science than they know I think they need to know how people think in science and how science progresses forward I think that that is as important as art I think those two things together perfect fit and I wish that people spent more time learning those than possibly at least you know that their education would encompass those better than maybe it does right now I feel like with scientists and with artists in general, this generalization, you're working with people that don't accept or that question what they're told on a regular basis. Scientists absolutely do. And I think that many artists do as well. So I think those are great places to teach people how to question authority, you know, how to question, how to look out for themselves, how to know what they want and what works for them and what doesn't work for them and just how to go forward in life. You know, if you want to be a Wall Street banker, that's great, but how to go forward and do that, but also have that ability to really, to question everything, not to accept it. And I think that both communities, the science and the art community, is they both give you that, kind of give me that comfortable area to live in where I pretty much you can be whoever you are and be in either one of those communities and feel. And don't you think imagination is such an important part of both of those? Yes. I suppose scientists might call it something else other than imagination, but you have to imagine a world where your hypothesis comes true because all the scientific research is stuff that hasn't come true yet. And artists experiment and they experiment and they fail and they fail and they fail and they experiment and then something sticks and they work on that for a while and then they experiment some more. And that sounds like science to me. It is. Absolutely. Right. I mean, that's what scientists do. You fail, you fail, you fail, you fail. And then finally something goes right and you can publish. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Fail and fail and fail and fail. And then finally something goes right and you can publish. You know, artists get a pass when they don't know and scientists don't. (laughs) No. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Do you think working as a scientist for as long as you have has made you less vulnerable to the anxiety that comes with failing? Well, that could be. I mean, it is a natural part of science to fail. I mean, do you, do you, when, when you do something in the studio and it doesn't work out, are you like, oh, I'm so mad oh, no. or like, oh, well, let's, let's melt it. And try oh, well, again. let's melt it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I, for the most part, I'm not that tied to what, I, what I'm working on to thinking, oh, you know, oh my God, this is, this is awful. It's just like, uh, let's melt it. Unless I'm toward the very end of something and then I do something and I go, oh my God, what did I do that for? Right, <laughs> that's, right. that's a totally different thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think about perfectionism and how so many writers and artists and creative people I know think that they have to do it perfectly the first time, right? And that everyone will judge them and it's the the best things that you show on social media are really what it's like. And it's not like that. There's all this crap behind it. Yeah. That happens before the beautiful painting and all the failures. Yeah. 
It's, and if uh, you're new at it, you feel like you should be able to do this big thing immediately and be successful. And, and it's, that's just not how it usually works. Not, yeah. It's not how it works. And I've the been doing, I mean, wonder. I've been using, you know, uh, you know, obviously, well, different media for the many years, but I have been doing it for many years. So I think that that also, right. you know, gives you some buffer zone on what you perceive as failing. Although sometimes, interestingly, I, when I look at some pieces that I have, I go, um, oh, I don't know. Do I like that? Don't I like it? I mean, it's, it's not something where, I mean, some pieces I look at, I go, yeah, I love that. And other pieces I go, you know, I'm a little so-so. But oftentimes those other pieces are what really stand out to people that are buying something. So mm-hmm. sometimes I just let them stay. And I said, right. it is some, something that I'm doing, some part of me, something I'm expressing. I'm, maybe I don't want to see it right now, <laughs> but, you know, maybe somebody else is ready to look at this. So, And yeah. everyone has different taste. Everyone has different tastes. <laughs> at the gallery opening at VAR last year, someone came up and she bought a few pieces and she said, I'm going to take that one. Yeah. And I said, that one, that's my least favorite. <laughs> Good, Margaret. <laughs> I know, right. Sell it, sister. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, brother. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. I was like, really? You like that? Like, I didn't yeah. want to put it in, but you had to because I didn't have 31 no. pieces. Yeah. I had 30. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that's so funny and she loves it. It's one yeah. of her favorites. And so yeah. there's just no telling the stuff that sells or resonates with someone else Mm -hmm. you seem so even well you know that could be yoga and meditation on and off since I was 16 I'm now 64 so that's a lot of uh years of doing that not that I did it consistently because you know I would be I'd be freaking Siddhartha about now if I'd been doing it every day for that many years I'm definitely not that you know and I started when I was young and when my brain was still growing faster than it's growing now so I think that it did have a little bit of a calming effect to to take me away Mm -hmm. from really being pulled in a direction by emotion you know unnecessarily I could just be naturally that way which I probably am to a degree but also I think that well of course you yoga and meditation take you to that to that place yoga and meditation has changed me too i was meditating consistently for probably a year and a half or two years i can't remember when i applied for the var 30 by 30 exhibit Mm -hmm. but my intention was i loved pieces with white space in them and i had a really difficult time stopping on a canvas stopping on a you know on a collage or something i would fill the whole thing not wanting to but i'm really drawn to pieces that have some white space in them and I wanted to do it. I realized that meditating every day gave me sort of more white space in my life. I feel like I had a bubble around me a little bit. I, it was just calmer. I didn't take everything on, right? right? And I was able to let go of some things. So I thought, I wonder if I meditated every morning, I set this intention, I would do a meditation and then I would do a piece and just let go. Like I only had so much time and my intention was to create some white space in these pieces and like just stop, put the thing on the page and stop. And it totally worked. It was amazing. Like I did the 30 days, I did 70 more days. I was afraid to stop because I felt so good personally and daily and I was calmer. And I mean, I do yoga because my body hurts, right? Yeah, sure. Because age, yoga and meditation is a balm for so many things. They have a um, show in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I worked with a a friend on that, and it's called Art Prize. It's a great show. Uh, They have it 
every year. Everybody from wherever can show their piece if they find some somebody that will show it. it goes all over the city. Whoever wins won like, I don't know, maybe $200,000. That was first prize at Art Prize. And everybody votes. So you go in with your phone. The public in general goes in, right. votes for this, that, the other thing. And whoever got the most votes won $200,000. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, it's a nice prize. Not My your typical jury. Thought, no, not your typical jury. Yeah, it was very interesting. In fact, they actually had to stop doing it that way. They had to say, okay, we're going to have typical jury and we're going to have the public. It's a big prize. So they would get big artists that wanted to come in and install something from wherever in the country. But typically those people were not winning because that's not what the general public was selecting as the right. best piece. So they split that off and now they have two categories, <laughs> two Funny, prizes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with Elaine, we thought, oh, what are we going to do for our prize? So, and we both like working with metal. There was this metal dump in the town we were in. We said, oh, let's just go look around. So we go to the metal dump. I found this huge bed spring. And I said, oh, let's just make a huge fish out of that bed spring. <laughs> that seems like pretty, we can do something pretty easy. And got all this other metal there. It was the, the guy that owned the place was kind of an artist himself. So he'd let us take whatever we wanted. So we built this huge fish. Uh, I mean, it was probably whatever it was, maybe 10 feet tall. And uh, out of this out of this mattress, cut it out of the mattress, which is way harder than you'd think it would be. <laughs> if you're thinking, oh, that seems easy, Deb. No, uh-uh. no, I don't know how old this mattress, these mattress springs were, but probably made in the 1930s or something. <laughs> Did they snap as you were cutting? Oh, I mean, you'd have to. Sometimes we have to use a saw to cut yeah. through the the spring. So we made finally. Were made, they rusty? They were not oh, rusty. They okay. were covered with some. Something not yet, anyway. Not, yeah, not they're real rusty now. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, that was a blast. That was a very fun, fun piece to work on, and a fun piece to work on with somebody else, and, sure. and then get into this big art prize, and you know, try to get everybody to. Friends. Of course, that took a lot of yeah, getting your getting your information out there and your friends to vote for it, your family to vote for it. We did not win our hundred, our hundred grand or two hundred grand, whatever it was, but uh, but it was a blast making the thing. Do they still do that? As far as I know, they do still do it. I don't know if they do it every other year now, but it was a huge boon to Grand Rapids. A lot of people would come in for the two weeks or something that they ran it for voting anyway. All right. Well, are you ready for your rapid fire questions? Yeah, sure. All right. Music, podcast, audio book, or silence? Okay. So it was music for encaustic podcast when I'm driving, silence when I'm outside. What was the other one? Uh, audiobooks? Audiobooks. No, 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 no audiobooks. Right. When I'm driving, podcast for sure. So I got them all covered there. What's your comfort food? Mashed potatoes. <sighs> totally. And in fact, when uh, my mom said, ah, you know, when I was pregnant with you, not before and not after, I craved mashed potatoes. Oh, that's great. Oh, for those nine months, craved mashed potatoes. Got me out of there and then, you know, it goes away. But yeah, mashed potatoes, I love, that's how much I love them. Yeah. Okay. Describe your favorite outdoor spot. My favorite outdoor spot. Well, there is a, a state park in Ludington, Michigan, that is a beautiful state park. It's on one side is Lake Michigan. And then kind of in the center of the park is a little lake called Hamlin Lake. And there's a trail along Hamlin Lake called uh, Lost Lake Trail that is just exquisitely beautiful. Uh, the trees, beautiful. You know, the little areas of Hamlin where you can just, if you get too hot, jump in the lake and swim around. Crystal, mm. beautiful water. And so that's one of my favorite 
spots in the world and just to relax. And What would you do with a financial windfall? Well, first, of course, I would take care of my family's business and uh, make sure everybody was all set with uh, their health insurance, not having to work really crappy jobs, that kind of thing. I'd buy myself a uh, 2011 Cherry Ford Ranger because on a truck. 2011? Then, well, it's, that's the last time they made oh, okay. Rangers that were the right size. They, they started Is making it a smaller again. one? It's a smaller one. Yeah, and yeah. now they, they started making them again, but you might as well have a 150 if you're going to have you know, this size thing. So, and am I talking, I'm talking about a big windfall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I would buy a big old building, Margaret. Yes. (laughs) And I would put a metal shop in it and a glass blowing and wood shop and ceramics shop work areas. And I would subsidize the heck out of that thing and have spaces in there for people to work and pay whatever rent they could they could pay just so I knew they had a vested interest in being there. But if that was nothing, that would be nothing. And, uh, and have that place buzzing. That's, I would love to do that and have, you know, classes on the weekends. Uh-huh. I would have somebody else manage it so that I could do my right. art. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that would be, that would be wonderful. Oh, that sounds that, gorgeous. That community there. Yeah. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I learned about your love of old buildings and mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes. I'll have to bring that to the next potluck whenever yeah. we can come yeah. together as a group again. Yeah, thank you for uh, pulling this together and, and for doing this. I, I wish you all the luck. I mean, the, the interviews you've done have been, are, are great. People need to hear your story and other people's stories so that they know they're not alone. Yeah, well. Thank you.